Good morning. I am Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. So glad to be here with you all today. Glad the sun is out, just like Melody said. Yay! Um, I have mentioned over the years when I get to teach our Chinese friend, Angelina, and she is with us today. She came all the way from China to be at Women in the Word. So she's going to stand up and wave. <laughs> she is so awesome, and God is using her in China in great ways. And she's only 26, so who knows what all is going to happen. Pretty exciting. Okay, I'm so glad we have a new semester of Women in the Word. I hope you are too. Christmas is wonderful, but it's also wonderful when it's over. And I actually have some bags in the corner of gifts I have not put away yet. I don't know if any of you have that. But um, I want to tell you about one of the best gifts I got this Christmas. It's an instant badminton net. And I've mentioned in the past that I played badminton in high school on a team, which is weird, I know. But I did. And um, it's always such a hassle in Texas to get those stakes in the ground and pull these ropes and try to get a net up. So now, like if I have a friend over at my house, we can be having coffee and I say, hey, want to play badminton? I can press a button in the kitchen and a giant net go up and we can play badminton. So come over to my house, instant badminton. Today we're going to talk about two gifts that God gives us. God himself, they are unbelievable. The gift of his spirit and the gift of his family. And it's his Holy Spirit and his Holy Church. Chapter 2 begins with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, it was on its way. Jesus had told his disciples after he ascended that it would be coming. Look on your verse sheet, John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. Now, we know God didn't create the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended so that we could have a helper. We studied Genesis last semester. We know that the Spirit of God is part of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We studied in Genesis, and all of you that have read Genesis realize the Holy Spirit was part of creating our world along with the Father and the Son. And also we see the Holy Spirit all throughout the Old Testament. He comes and he goes in situations. He comes and he goes in people's lives. We see how he came upon people. He was poured out on people. He rested on people, but he did not permanently indwell people. But after Christ's work was done on earth, the time was right. It was a new day. It was the age of grace. It was the age of the church. It was a new covenant between God and his followers. And Christ was calling out for himself a body of people devoted to him. It was the time for God to give a gift that would not only change individual lives, would change the world. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this spirit would indwell everyone who believed in the name of Jesus Christ for their salvation. So we know today, all of us, all believers are permanently sealed with the presence of the God of the universe. The great I am right here. 
What a gift. How amazing. Scripture tells us we believe, we receive, and we are sealed by the Spirit of God. It's funny, my husband Ted, when he was young in the faith and uh, was in college, he went to help out at a club once because he was funny and they had him do skits. And then one day they just handed him a Bible and sat him on a stool and said, okay, start a Bible study with these people. So we like to tease him because one of the DBU professors now, Dallas Baptist University, was one of those kids in that class. And he likes to remind Ted, remember when I raised my hand in the Bible study and said, how do you get the Holy Spirit? Ted had no idea. (laughs) And so, so he was, don't tell Ted, I'm telling you this. So he did this, uh, he did this quick thinking on his feet and he said, well, we're all born with the Holy Spirit, but it comes alive at us in different times. That was his answer. Hopefully those people are still walking with God. We know God makes his abode in us at the moment that we receive Christ as our Savior. Look on your verse sheet. Ephesians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Galatians tells us, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then here's a couple verses of Peter speaking about when the Gentiles receive the Spirit. See what it says. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these Gentile people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Here's another way we know that the Spirit is a part of our conversion experience because we are reborn, Scripture tells us, when we come to Christ. We are a new creature. That cannot happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what it, it's, it's His work. And we are reborn at the moment we accept Christ as our Savior. Look at 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Titus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the amazing thing. While the rest of the world and many other religions strive to please a God, that is distant and unknowable, or they strain to find a God that seems so far away. Christians have, living within them, God himself. Jesus told the disciples, this is going to happen to you. Look at John 14. Jesus said, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world can't receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now look at that last sentence again. He dwells with you, disciples, but he's not in you yet. He will be in you after I ascend and Pentecost comes. 
So a gift as astonishing as that needs to be wrapped in a very special and beautiful way. And it was. How about wrapping it in wind? How about wrapping it in fire? That's what God did. Before we look at that, I want to look at the timing of the delivery of the gift. Look in chapter 2 in your Bible. Just the first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And we looked at this last week. Um, In our homework, you studied that Pentecost was an annual feast. It was held 50 days after Passover. Pentecost actually means 50th. It was also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest. It happened in May or June. And it was one of three annual feasts that the Jews were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. You had Passover, you had Pentecost, and you had the Feast of the Tabernacles, the three feasts. At Pentecost, there would be an offering of the first fruits of the nation's harvest, and they were presented to God. What a perfect day for God to send the gift of the Holy Spirit and to birth the second gift, the Church of God. Because in an upper room crowded were 120 followers of Jesus, and they were Jesus' harvest. They were the first fruits of his ministry, the disciples, other believers, the women who followed him and served him, his mother, his brothers. You could hear them praying through the walls of the upper room, I'm sure. Sometimes they might be singing. They were waiting. They were hoping, all in obedience to what Jesus had told them to do, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So in the upper room were the first fruits of Jesus' ministry who would become the church. They would be the consecrated harvest to God, and they would indicate that another growing harvest would be coming the rest of the people that join the church, you and me. And then, this is awesome to think about, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would be the first fruit of their eternal inheritance in their life. It's the first fruit that we receive as well, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So let's open that gift, verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A lot of us have read these verses a lot, and it's so easy to read these and really not be moved at all. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a wind it filled the house. Tongues of fire came over their heads. Be a passerby. Be someone that's walking past the upper room. Now, you probably had to be really tall to look in the window. Let's say you were. And you get to the window, and you look inside, and you see 120 people crowded, sitting there, and all of a sudden, this wind that's so loud and rushing is in the room, and you're watching it through the window, and all of a sudden, fire. Fire is over people's heads. If you were at the window, now you were running home. (laughs) That's how amazing, that's how divine, that's how miraculous 
the arrival of that gift of the Holy Spirit was. This was not a little breeze. This was a mighty, rushing, wild wind. It says it filled every corner of the room. Fire enters the room, hovers over the heads of the people in the room. Why wind and why fire? Let's look at that wind. The word for spirit is related to the word wind. They both come from the verb meaning to breathe. And both are connected to God bringing new life. For a Hebrew person to say this word, they had to use a lot of breath. So when a Hebrew spoke this word, they were pretty much demonstrating the word. Lots of breath, lots of wind. So when we think about it, I say let's go all the way back to Genesis. Let's go back to creation when we read about the Spirit of God hovering over the dark waters that were formless and were void. The language used in Genesis lets us know that this was the breath of God over the waters, creating and breathing new life into this darkness. And one chapter later, we read the story of the creation of Adam. And we read how God breathed into Adam his breath. And this brought Adam new life. He became a new living being. Without God's breath, Adam would have remained just dust, just matter. So in the New Testament, after Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension, he enters the locked doors where the disciples are hiding, terrified, in great fear of the Jews. They've locked their door. Jesus steps in. He shows them his hands. He shows them his feet. And then he says, As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And then Scripture tells us he breathed over the disciples. And he said, Receive the Spirit. Now, we know they didn't have the Spirit indwell them at that time because he told them that would happen after his ascension. But it's the same word breathed that he spoke into Adam. And what he was saying to them was that the Holy Spirit would breathe new life into them because he was calling them to do a really big thing. As God has sent me, so I will be sending you. And so receive the Spirit. It will give you new life. It was the promise when Jesus breathed out, the promise of new life and new power when God's Spirit would inhabit them at Pentecost. And guess what? The very same disciples that are here now, locked afraid in a room, would not be behind closed doors anymore. They would be opening doors of salvation to the lost all around uh, Israel. So here in the second chapter of Acts, when every corner of the room is filled with the sound of a wild wind, we realize the life-giving power of the third person of the Trinity, and we witness a new era. And those who begin a new life in Christ do that with the helper of the Holy Spirit, the inner dwelling of God himself. So the coming of the Spirit as a violent wind, it symbolized this work of the Spirit to bring new spiritual life and power as he took up residence in the hearts of believers. 
And I think we know God's Spirit is still the vehicle to be a new creature today. If a person is to be saved from the void, from the darkness that is their soul, void of life. If a person is to be awakened from being lifeless like dust when we're dead in our sins. If a person to be, is to be unlocked from fear to living a life of courage and purpose, God must breathe into them his spirit. I love uh, what Franklin Graham's ministry is, the Samaritan's Purse. A lot of you do that ministry here at Christ Chapel. And I don't know if you've read his book, but when he was a kid, he was hard. He didn't like God. He didn't really like what his family stood for. He was a rebel. He was really difficult. In high school, his mom used to beat on his door to get him to go to school, and he locked it, and he would just tell her to go away. I think one of the funniest stories is when his, his little wife, I mean his little mom, thought, okay, I can't get him out of bed through his door because he has it locked. She actually climbed on the roof made her way across the roof because she knew there was a window there. She could hop in and start yelling at him to go to school, which she did. How can that same man be touching and changing lives with the gospel all over the world? There was a day when God breathed his spirit into Franklin Graham. He's a new person. He's a new creature. He has new life. Okay, fire was the other symbol, and it also represents God. And we remember in the Old Testament, we see fire and flames representing God many times. Remember the burning bush when he spoke to Moses? He would lead Israel in the wilderness by a pillar of fire. And on Mount Sinai, God confirmed the validity of the Old Testament law through fire coming down from heaven at Pentecost. God is confirming the validity of the Holy Spirit with fire coming down from heaven as well. And John the Baptist predicted it. He predicted fire would be part of the cleansing ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 3. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John was saying when the Messiah arrived, he would empower and cleanse a people for himself. But I think we can't even look about this fire. Why tongues? Why did they look like tongues? And I think maybe tongues symbolize speech. In this room, God's children were receiving the Spirit. So from that time on, their tongues were not their own. They had a new message. They had a new purpose. They'd be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ unto the ends of the earth. So with God's purifying presence in our lives, our hearts are set on fire to ignite the gospel into the lives of others. And that's immediately what happens in the upper room. After the wind and after the fire came praises in many languages. And I think people outside, because they were so busy with Pentecost, began to hear it. And obviously the people in the upper room left the upper room. Their tongues are not their own anymore. They've got to tell the world. And they come out and people uh, begin to hear praise in many languages. And I want us to think real quickly. um, 
Remember at the Tower of Babel, the sin of the people was so great that God confused their languages. And what was the result? They could not be united. They had to separate. They had to spread out. We have a reversal here happening in the upper room at Pentecost. God's got a kingdom. He wants to start growing. So he's going to cause them to speak in languages where everyone can hear the truth, to build a kingdom for himself, to build the household of God. I had a little experience of how this is true. Uh, When I graduated from college, I was a French minor, and so Ted took me to Paris. And I thought that was going to be really fun. And so I could sort of read, and I could sort of speak, and I could sort of talk, so that was really fun. And one day, it was this warm, sunny day, and there was a little pond. And I don't remember what we were doing, but I was sitting by myself on the edge of the pond, and this very... um, typical little French man came and sat next to me with his little beret and asked me a few things, and I answered him back. So for a while, we felt sort of united. But then he went off into this long, long story, and my eyes went like this, and I I had no idea what he was saying anymore, but it was awkward and embarrassing to sort of stop him. So unfortunately, I didn't stop him. He probably talked like that to me for 10 minutes with me not understanding one thing he was saying. So I was going, hmm, hmm. Which was so embarrassing. And all of a sudden, he got real quiet and looked at me and said, you don't speak French, do you? So the, the jig was up. But I had felt like I have a new friend, and because we could no longer communicate, I just wanted him to go away. At Pentecost, everybody began to tell about the glories of God in languages that everyone could understand, uniting every people group, everyone around them, speaking living languages of the people who had arrived in Jerusalem to go to Pentecost and other Jews who were living in Jerusalem. And the word for language here is just that. It means A spoken language. It does not mean some utterance that is unidentified. They were speaking of God's mighty works and other evidences. This was evidence of the presence of God's spirit. And it marked the beginning of believers witnessing to the world. Let's look at verse 5. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem... Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of these languages, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So we have two possible reactions here. Oh, wait, let's go back down. Let's go down to verse 11. We're not going to read where they're all from. Here's who we're hearing it, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So here's the two reactions to the mighty works of God in our world. Either they're astonishing to a person... Or they're ridiculed. We have the two possibilities here. In this case, the scoffers decided the people were drunk. 
Now, have you ever been somewhere where 120 people are all drunk together at the same time? Wouldn't be happening. When it says they're filled with new wine, that translates sweet wine, which came from a particular grape, which had a very high alcoholic content. So they thought they'd figured it all out. Uh, When the world doesn't want to believe the truths about God, their arguments seem very rational. But we want to see... uh, the second gift of God, the church, take action, God's family, Peter, now he has the living God indwelling and empowering him. Now he has a fellowship of believers around him called the church supporting him. Now he has the 11 disciples standing next to him, strong and tall, witnesses of Jesus, and Peter rises up. And boldly begins to tell everyone who's been listening the truth about Jesus Christ. Now remember, this is the Peter who denied Jesus three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Peter who locked the room after Jesus' crucifixion in great fear. The Peter who decided he would return to a career of fishing after the crucifixion of Jesus. This same Peter now puts out his fishing pole and goes fishing for the souls of men. We see the first sermon. 3,000 souls, one for Christ. Three principles defined his sermon. It was based on the Word of God. It was centered on the person of Christ. And it was covered in compassion. And Peter is so wise. He begins his, his sermon anchoring his theme in the scriptures that would have been very familiar to the Jewish people that are standing around, the crowds of thousands of people standing around Peter and the disciples and the new church. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Okay, so first Peter makes the obvious obvious. It's 9 a.m. We are not drunk. That's, we're throwing that argument out. Then he uses Joel's prophecy to explain... It was the work of the Spirit that they were witnessing. Joel told you this would happen. There would come a time in the last days when not only kings and judges got to have the Spirit of God involved in their lives, not only the prophets, all followers of God. And this was the last days. We call the last days from the time Christ came until he comes again. They were in the last days. So the rest of this prophecy of Joel, it was fulfilled at Pentecost, but it'll be perfectly fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. Then Peter wants to talk about the Psalms. Jesus had said, guess what? You will find me in the Psalms. And Peter knows that. So look at verse 25. David says concerning him, 
Now let me make this point. David was a king, but in these passages, he's speaking about a king. He's speaking about his king, the king of kings. 25. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence, a prophecy about Christ. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter points out to these perplexed Jews that these very passages that they know very well were about the very carpenter from Nazareth that was hanging on a cross outside their gates. Now for some of them, that was the most astonishing thing they could have ever heard. Now Peter can bring him in about this person, Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that We are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Okay, picture the streets of Jerusalem, dusty stone. Picture the crowd, the church around Peter. Picture the 11 disciples standing right next to him. But Peter also has standing next to him thousands of lost people. And everyone who's listening to his words, they know this. Within his sermon is evidence that demands a verdict. Evidence that demands a verdict. He begins his discourse with great respect by calling them men of Israel. This was a, uh, an honoring title. It recalled all the best that Israel stood for. And then he pointed out how their scriptures that they honor point to Jesus. But in what we just read, he points to more proofs. He points, one, to the miracles of Jesus. Do you think those people didn't know about the miracles of Jesus? Some of them had miracles done to them. Some of them lived next door to people who had miracles done to them. And almost all of them had heard about the miracles this man Jesus performed. Healing the blind, the lame, feeding 5,000 from a few fish, lepers cleansed, demons exercised, the leaping and the rejoicing of those who were once wounded, 
They knew what Peter was talking about. Secondly, second proof, the approval of God. Peter connects God to all the works of Christ. He says God's involved and was involved with those miracles of Jesus. That points to who he really is. He's the Christ of God, your promised Messiah. And he tells them, so when your hands, your lawless hands, led Jesus to a cross, it was really under the control of God himself. It was part of his plan. And he tells them, this God you worship is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And then he pointed to all his disciples around him and said, we saw it. We saw him. We saw him alive again. Third proof, greatest proof, Jesus rose from the dead. Now at this point, I think you could hear a pin drop. And the thousand people are thinking, how do we know if what Peter says is true? So Peter gives them the fourth proof. You hear us speaking in your languages, even though we don't know your languages? You are witnessing and hearing for yourself the arrival of the Holy Spirit of God. So Peter presents those proofs. Now he recognizes that he has to convict them of their sin and their need. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day, About 3,000 souls. Now, would that be the work of the Spirit? The Spirit had arrived. The work of the Spirit. What a way to grow the church. Okay, I want us to take one second to look back at verse 38 because some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, that sounds interesting. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So... This seems to be saying baptism is necessary in order to be forgiven and to receive the Holy Spirit. The best way to unpack something that's confusing like that is to compare it to other scripture. We just read all those scriptures uh, that wouldn't go along with that. Um, But let's look at one more, Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So let's look a little closer at this verse and Peter's instruction. First of all, repent. That means to turn. Turn from your unbelief and sin and turn to Christ. Then he says, be baptized as an outward sign of your faith and forgiveness. So that would be good so far. But then what stops us next? is the word for 
be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the Holy Spirit. Since we see this nowhere else in Scripture and the Bible doesn't display this, there has to be another reason. The reason is the wording. The preposition for in the Greek is better translated because of. Because of or on the basis of the forgiveness of sins. So repent and be baptized in Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. And then when your sins are forgiven, you receive the Holy Spirit. You'll notice baptism is connected to the verse of forgiving one's sins. So Peter's telling the crowd, you too can have the Holy Spirit in your life. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your rejection of Christ and turn to him. Turn to Jesus. Have your sins forgiven. Go be baptized to let the world know. Display your new faith. Believers are baptized in view of God's work of forgiveness, not to receive God's forgiveness. You've already received that. Peter's sermon next is covered in compassion. Forgiveness is what he was saying here. It was on his heart as he spoke to thousands of Jews in the streets. And I love that about Peter. You know, Peter in the past, you kind of knew Peter as a guy who liked to brag a lot. Was he giving this eloquent sermon to say, hey, aren't you impressed with everything I know? Don't you like my new power in the Holy Spirit? Don't you wish you had it? No, you guys did bad things. See you later. No. At the heart of Peter's sermon, it was covered in compassion, wanting them to be forgiven and receive the Savior. He says, save yourselves. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And they did. That should be our goal. Whenever we find ourselves debating someone, or talking to someone about the faith and having it be pushed back on us. Our goal should not be to prove a point, to win the debate, to make someone feel foolish, to be self-righteous, to impress someone. Our goal is that they will come to Jesus. So we respect them as Peter did these Jews. But we present the truth and we pray and we love and we want them to come to Jesus. So the church, the family of God, it was off to a great start. But I want to look a little deeper at what this family looked like. So look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Aren't you glad that God had a plan after we were saved to empower us with his spirit and to support us with his family? 
So what does the church look like? The early church gives us a great picture of it. First of all, what's the first thing mentioned? Devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's not insignificant that this is the first thing mentioned here. A church has to be devoted to learning the word of God or it is not a church. And the apostles' teachings, they were authoritative because God was teaching through the apostles. And the New Testament scriptures today are also authoritative for the very same reason. The New Testament is the Lord teaching through the apostles' recorded witness. Also authoritative. And I love it that the words were penned under God's leading in both the Old and New Testament. And what other book do you know that is absolutely alive this many years later? that can change lives, that can comfort our hearts, that can give us direction, that can draw us near to our Creator. No other book does that. It is alive. Um, It was so interesting that I had uh, coffee with a friend this week, and she was telling me how she wanted to study the book in a class of Philemon. So she's studying the Word of God and starting to get uneasy and continues to study the Word of God. And God begins to open her heart. You need to forgive your mother. You haven't forgiven your mother. She said, if I hadn't studied that book of the Bible, I don't know how many years it would take for me to realize how much sin I was harboring in my heart against my mother. Because of God's Word, because it was written through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it is alive, and her relationship with her mom is entirely different today. That's what God's Word does for us. The apostles we see here, they were also equipped by God to continue in the very miracles Jesus did. Why? Because God would use these miracles to authenticate the gospel to authenticate this new good news, to authenticate the birth of this new group of people. And what were these people like? They were devoted to each other. You've heard the word koinonia. That is the best word in Greek to describe what this church was like. It means fellowship. And we read about them. There were shared meals. There are the taking of communion. There is awe. There is generosity. There is compassion for the needy. There is sacrifice. There is gladness. There is thankfulness. There is joy. You know, when people say to me, I don't really need church, that's what you're missing. That is what you're missing. And guess what? God equipped each of us with something to give to the church, so when we decide we don't need it, we're leaving a hole where we should be. The church needs us as well. This was an incredible place to be. They're also, of course, devoted to God. There is prayer. There is praises to God in a healthy church. And you know, the Jews were used to going to the temple every day. So it tells us here that that did not change at this time. Um, But think about how different their prayers would be. They would go to the temple because... They were realizing everything we've been praying about and studying and reading. It has happened. Now we understand the Messiah has come and he's going to come again. And I think those people went to the temple every day to pray that the nation Israel would come to understand this incredible truth. 
The early church was visible by people in Jerusalem, and because they had such a unity of heart and spirit, and they had so much joy, it says the church was respected by people. We know that eventually changed when persecution came along, but that's what was happening here. What's the outcome of a healthy church? Two things. God was adding to their number those who were being saved, salvation, and maturity. Each member in this church was growing in their understanding of God. Look at our last verse, Ephesians 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So let's close by unwrapping God's gifts to us one last time. When we open the gift of his spirit, we believe, we receive, and we are sealed by the spirit when we believe in Christ. We are baptized in the spirit at our conversion and filled with the spirit repeatedly throughout our spiritual journey. So if anyone ever comes up and asks you, have you been baptized in the spirit? Here's your answer. Praise God, yes. When I accepted Christ as my redeemer, yes, I was baptized. But have you ever been filled with the spirit? Okay, if you're living a disobedient, undisciplined life with no relationship with God as far as prayers... You would have the Spirit, but you'd probably be grieving the Spirit. So no, you probably wouldn't be filled with the Spirit at that time. He would still be living in you, but you would not be filled. But if you yield to his work, if you walk by the Spirit every day humbly, if you pray and you talk to God and you know his word, the answer is yes. He's going to fill you. It's not going to come about just by a prayer and then you go live your life how you want. It comes about by choosing to walk alongside the gift that he's given you in your heart. And I think there are different valleys and mountains you and I are going to face, and you all know this, where God fills you with different times for different situations. And then for God's family, when we unwrap that gift, we find a family that joyfully joins us in our pursuit and our purposes of God. What a generous God. When we recognize his great gifts, we have to recognize his great love for us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you provide all we need to live this life, to bring glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.